You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Welcome to The Weekly Brew, your source for political, social, and sports commentary brewed up in an hour or less. I'm Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Zach Taylor. Guys, with Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror, I'm curious, what is something that you were thankful for this year? I myself was thankful for the podcast. You know, I've uh, I've always loved to talk. A lot of people have accused me of loving the sound of my own voice, and that's not true. Um, I have uh, an ambivalent relationship with the sound of my voice, but I do love to talk, and I love talking with you guys, and I love the interesting stuff we get into. So I was actually, um, and I, I texted you guys, I was thankful for the podcast uh, this Thanksgiving, and my family, but um, but mostly podcast. <laughs> Podcast first, family second. All right, uh, Jeremy, Zach, what about you guys? I'm thankful for Kevin. Um, he gives me a he's a he's a faceless liberal that I get to fight once a week, so I'm actually pretty thankful for that. Um, other than that, uh, family, really thankful for family. Um, they've been great this year for me, just going through kind of a transition in my career. So, um, having passed my test here, uh, they were a huge help. So um, I have to say I'm thankful for them, um, and just for you guys in general. So. Just joking about the Kevin thing. I love you, Kevin. Well, it sounds like uh, the podcast and the family have been kind of. Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna double that up or triple it up. Actually, um, although I am thankful for you guys and am certainly thankful for my family. I'm. I'm thankful for my job. Uh, I just moved to Fort Worth uh, about a year ago um, and was excited to get out of Amarillo and take a new direction, uh, heading that way. So I'm thankful for the opportunity that that was given to me to move down here and start something new it's very good and kind of like everyone else has kind of alluded to i'm definitely thankful for being able to have all of you guys on the podcast all the listeners but more specifically having a a strong network of family and friends that you know is is supportive in good times and bad times and uh just all the people and relationships that i've had this year in terms of developing those and uh, creating friendships that last a lifetime and hopefully a podcast that lasts a lifetime but uh thank you again to everyone for listening this past year we're definitely thankful for all of our listeners and we can't wait to see what 2016 has to offer but in terms of itunes and reviews and everything kevin go ahead and talk about that briefly and then we'll mention the rest at the end of the show oh yeah uh i, I guess i forgot to mention specifically thankful for the way uh listeners responded this week i sort of made an impassioned call to action last week uh in which i encouraged you guys implored you guys to get out there and write some reviews many of you did it was actually a great week for listeners reviews for, uh, for listens downloads uh the populator on itunes has never been higher so we will uh give you guys the shout out we promised at the end of the episode um which is just really a craven way to keep you guys listening until the very end because believe it or not that's factored into uh itunes is popularity rankings as well. So if you did leave a review this week, we are very grateful and you will hear your name called in your review uh, analyzed uh, toward the end of the podcast. Also, we'd like to thank our sponsor, We Desserts, for making this podcast possible. Again, all of our listeners can head into We Desserts at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. They can get 10% off their purpose. Also, make sure to check them out on Friday and Saturday for beignet days. Be there. And if you're on social media, you can go ahead and follow us at facebook.com slash weeklybrewcast, Twitter at weeklybrewcast, and you can also find us on Instagram at weeklybrewcast. We've had some interaction here this week. We'd love to continue that and interact with our listeners. Uh, So we will get more into that again, as Kevin mentioned, at the end of the show. But folks, we've got a packed show on deck. It's time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. Let's start with a big lead. The big lead. Hall of Fame basketball coach Guy Vernon Lewis II passed away last week at the age of 93. 
Lewis coached at the University of Houston from 1956 to 1986 and led his Cougars to five NCAA Final Four appearances. Perhaps most notably, Lewis helped lead racial integration of college basketball in the South by recruiting Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney to Houston in the 1960s. He was also known for putting together the Game of the Century at the Astrodome in 1968 between the Cougars and UCLA. That was the first regular season college basketball game to be broadcasted on national television. Now joining us on the Weekly Brew to discuss the legacy of Coach Lewis is Howard Lorch, who is the team manager for the Cougars in the 1960s and roommate of Elvin Hayes. Howard, thanks for joining us this week. My pleasure, guys. When you heard the news this past week about Coach Lewis passing away, what was your reaction? Well, I had seen Coach Lewis about a month prior to his passing. I went up to Kyle, Texas to visit him, and we had a nice visit. And You know, he uh, really was in good spirits. Um, I had a chance to show him a video that had some of the uh, basketball game in the uh, Astrodome in it. Of course, he enjoyed watching that with me, and uh, we had a nice visit. He had a little birthday cake from someone else that was having a birthday there, and we, uh, I guess we visited about, for about an hour, and then uh, we, uh, you know, we went our separate ways. Obviously, uh, the last month or so, he's kind of gone downhill, and uh, of course, um, we we were fortunate to have him for uh, a long time in in uh, Cougar Nation. But he was he, he will always have a special part, place in all of our hearts because um, you know he was he and Coach Yeoman and uh, Dave Williams are really the uh, cornerstones of our coaching staff as far as football, uh, basketball, and baseball. And uh, and I'm happy to say we still have coach yeoman with us and uh but guy was a, a very special person i'll tell you what having grown up without a father myself my father passed away when i was six he was like the father i never had because he was a person that that um really was gave me the opportunity to uh um accept the responsibility of being the team manager and really trust entrusted me with a lot of responsibilities and um, taught me a lot of the skills that I have today in in being uh, a basketball manager and and, and that was uh, something I'll never forget and uh, the fact that he had that kind of confidence and trust in me and uh, I think that kind of let you know the kind of person that he was that that he let you um, grow as a person under his tutelage and, and you could whether it was on the basketball court or as a as a manager I mean he was uh, always uh, complimentary and uh, very much encouraging on everything um, anybody did and conversely when you screwed up he would let you know he wasn't afraid to tell you, look, you screwed up and here's the way it should have been, whether it was on the basketball court or, you know, as a as a basketball manager. If you, But he would do it in such a way, guys, that, that you would know that he was, he was, it was a learning thing. It wasn't a lecture. It was a learning thing, which, which I think is, makes the big difference. Howard, if you don't mind, just kind of starting back telling us how uh, it was that you got to be um, the team manager for uh, Coach Lewis and the Cougars back uh, back in, what was it, 62? Yeah, 1962. I came from a very um, um, well-known um, 
basketball powerhouse in the Northeast. And we uh, we uh, only lost one game in our three years of my high school, and uh, had a guy that was on our team um, who I, he and I were best friends. We would ride to school every day with the coach. His name was Pat Riley, and uh, Coach Lewis, of course, wrote to. Uh, I mean. Coach Prislow was my high school coach, and he wrote to Coach Lewis telling him about his basketball manager that uh, was already accepted at the University of Houston that was wanting to be a basketball manager, and he, that I was, uh, you know, best friends with Pat Riley, who was uh, a junior. And, of course, um, everybody knew who Pat Riley was at the time because uh, we had beaten uh, Lou Alcindor Power Memorial that year, and that was their... Oh, you know, uh, a loss at, in our Christmas tournament that we had up in upstate New York. And uh, anyway, so uh, Coach Lewis said, when when Howie gets down, which help. Well, when uh, I went to see him, he uh, was nice enough to offer me uh, books and tuition at uh, the U of H, and uh, told me if I worked hard that maybe that someday I could become the head manager which would entail getting a full scholarship. So that's how I began my uh, management career at the university. And, of course, uh, um, back then it was pretty uh, evident, even as a junior, that uh, Pat Riley was going to go to Kentucky because he was being recruited by Adolph Rupp from Kentucky, who was a legend, you know, uh, like Guy Lewis, uh, way back in the... uh, in the 60s, and uh, so Pat ended up going to uh, Kentucky, and uh, uh, you know I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, be involved with a lot of the recruiting of our basketball players because um, Coach Lewis obviously knew that I could um, take the guys out, and I would show them around town and uh, the you know the various places that. And venues in the city, and you know, we'd always, uh, you know, manage to uh, go out and have some good dinners. And uh, you know, even back then, Houston had a lot to offer uh, anybody that came to visit. It was, you know, uh, not the city it is today, but in comparison, it was every much, every bit as much of, of a drawing spot as any other uh, place in the Southwest, I would say. So. Once, once we started, um, you know, uh, recruiting black athletes, I know that um, you know Coach Lewis had an opportunity um, to really, uh, you know, prior to 1964, he actually was after a kid that was going to Worthing High School at the time by the name of David Latin. And David, of course, graduated. In, he was an early graduate. He graduated in, uh, I believe, it was uh, December of '62. So he really wasn't, uh, or was it '63? Maybe December of '63. So he wasn't really eligible to um, be recruited by us because we didn't get the go-ahead till after the '60, you know, '63-'64 uh, season, and. Um, you know, that's when we were told, uh, or Coach Lewis was told by then-President Philip Hoffman that, yes, we uh, could start, you know, uh, recruiting black athletes. So, of course, um, 
Coach Lewis knew all about Don Chaney because he was a high school All-American, but uh, Elvin was really um, someone that no one really knew about until Coach Dave Whitney from Texas Southern called uh, Coach Lewis and said, uh, you know, there's a kid over in Rayville, Louisiana that's averaged uh, 45 points a game and, and over 20 rebounds, and uh, his team won the state championship. They were 53-0, and 0, and uh, um, you ought to go after him if you're going to start recruiting black players. And, and Coach Lewis said, well, gee, Dave, that seems kind of strange. Why aren't you, you know, if he's so good, why aren't you recruiting him? Or, and he said, well, look, I know that I can't get the kid because – He's already, you know, uh, all set to go to Grambling and and play for Coach Hobby, and uh, I don't want to have to go up against him eight times over the next four <laughs> years because this guy's is a is a monster, and uh, that would be eight losses for me. So it it really would be in my best interest to see somebody else, you know, get him out of the uh, SWAC conference. So that's how we found out about Elvin. And then, then of course, from there we 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 uh, contacted Elvin's coach, and uh, Coach Lewis went went over to Rayville, and and uh, I, actually, I think it was Coach Pate that may have gone there first. But anyway, they uh, they brought Elvin over for a visit, and when Elvin and Don came to to Houston, um, I was asked to um, show them around because candidly, uh, Coach was concerned about. You know his players being you know all white, whether or not they would be you know, how they would respond to showing these two guys that was a, that would eventually be taking some people's jobs away from them as players, and, and especially since um, a lot of these guys had never been around blacks before. And uh, I, I uh, of course, having grown up in a very integrated environment, was you know uh, Coach Lewis knew that. Uh, you know, I'd be more than happy to show them around and 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 have that routine down pretty pat. So we we had a great time, Don Elvin and I, and uh, we uh, I can remember the first time I had we went up into my uh, dormitory room and uh, I had a room in the athletic dorm and it was one that I had by myself and uh, I know we had a six or seven of the players sitting around with us and we just happened to have a press guide that somebody had and of course Elvin was looking at it and he went down the list of uh, the records, freshman records because back then we had freshman team in a varsity. They didn't play together in, until your sophomore year. And Elvin went down the, the, the records for freshman points, rebounds, you name it, block shots. Got it, got it, got it, got it. He said, where's the varsity records? And then we flipped over a few pages. He said, got it, got it. He says, you could throw this book away and go ahead and put my picture on the cover. I'm going to have all these <laughs> records. And, of course, you know, you, you're looking at a, a bunch of guys. I don't care what color you are, but you got a bunch of upperclassmen. See this, you know, 17-year-old kid coming in here talking smack like that and of course they're saying who who the hell is this guy that thinks he's that good but not only did, did Evan 
Elvin uh, walked the walk, but he, he talked the talk and got it done. He broke every record when it came to scoring, rebounding, block shots, you name it. He did it all. And uh, I think um, that was because Elvin had a tremendous desire not only to play well but to win. And we all know that that to win you have to be able to do more than just uh, play the game. You've got to dominate. And he was a dominator. You know, he dominated for four years, and that's why he was a uh, two-time consensus All-American, uh, the only one we've ever had, in, for that matter, in basketball, and also a uh, player of the year in 1968. Coach Lewis was one of the first in the region to integrate and to, and to bring um, you know, that mixture of races into academics and athletics together, and, uh, and you were kind of a witness to that. What were some of the stresses or challenges that I guess you saw um, integrating uh, you know, a basketball team? Well, it wasn't that it was that difficult, really, because you know, all the players, once Elvin and Don got there, they realized how good they were, those two were, and, and they wanted to win, but I think um, it was as much of a challenge for um, Elvin and Don as it was for Coach Lewis because Coach Lewis had never been around blacks, and uh, candidly, I think uh, it was a it was an adjustment for him too because he was one of these guys that wanted to be um, you know fair to everyone, but uh, and sometimes I think. Uh, there were opportunities for him to come down on Elvin and, and Don, and he probably was a little bit, um, you know, uh, more uh, considerate toward them because he didn't want to give them the feeling that he was picking on them, I guess. That would be the best way to describe it. But um, I think he uh, he made the transition very well, and uh, he, he tried his best to, to make – you know, everybody feel like, you know, they, you know, they were just all part of one team. And uh, we never really had any, what I'd call, problems once they got there. And uh, I know we had, um, uh, Elvin and I had a situation once in a Chinese restaurant where we had gone to eat. And um, the, there was a family sitting in the booth across from us. And uh, then the owner that Chinese restaurant came over and said those people wanted me to ask you two to leave because they didn't want to sit here with somebody that was black in the restaurant. He said, I told them that they could leave, which, you know, obviously this fellow being uh, Asian himself probably realized that, you know, if anybody was going to leave, it had to be the one that had their hate, hate in their heart. And that's what happened. But we, uh, I think, um, we're very fortunate not to have any, what I'd call, you know, major incidents, you know, in, uh, um, with Elvin and Don. And then, of course, the next year we had Elvin, uh, Melvin Bell and uh, Theotis Lee and a fellow by the name of uh, Joe Walker come in as freshmen, um, Melvin being from Oklahoma and uh, uh, Theotis Lee and, and Joe Walker being from uh, Louisiana. In fact, they were from Monroe, Louisiana, which was about 20 miles from where Elvin actually grew up. But um, I think that for the most part, uh, you know, Coach Lewis was uh, more than fair with 
with everyone. And, uh, you know, although he was very, very um, um, disciplined at practice, you know, you know we, uh, he made a point of, uh, you know, making sure that everybody, you know, was out there with one purpose in mind, and that was to win. My father kind of mentioned that there were there were some tension, not tensions, but that um, I guess Elvin in particular was unsure of uh, how to comport himself or what what the relationship was like between a head coach and a player. And I was wondering um, if if you could speak to that. He mentioned things like kind of hanging his head and being silent, and he talked about how Lewis and and Hayes kind of had to come to terms about that. And I was curious if he had any insight into that. Here's the thing: you got to remember where Elvin came from when it, uh, my. Elvin's freshman year, I went home with Elvin. He and I and another fellow from the Bronx named Reno Lifschutz, and we went to Elvin's hometown of Rayville to have Thanksgiving. And uh, as we went from Monroe to to Rayville, we actually went through an area where there was, Elvin pointed out to us, where they had cross burnings, and there was still a smoldering area there where they probably... Klukoch Clan had had one probably the, that night before. And as we got close to Rayville, Elvin actually got, said, look, i got to get in the back seat because he was sitting up the front with me and because and of his size. And I only had a little 61 uh, Plymouth uh, a Valiant a Coupe. And uh, so I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, if, if they see a black guy riding with a couple white guys, they're going to pull us over. So Elvin had to get in the back seat and lay down so that he wouldn't be seen. And he showed us how to get to his side of town, which was all, you know, on the other side of the tracks, really, and uh, in a very impoverished area. But, uh, you know, you got to understand that when you're a black person living in a, in a white man's world, and that's what it was in, in uh, Louisiana and Rayville, remember, that, that was no more than 100 miles from Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the uh, just uh, three months earlier, two uh, guys from New York, very similar to myself and Reno, uh, were, were killed along with a black activist. The three of them, the three activists were killed. So, I mean, those were, uh, that's a part of the country that was uh, very, very racist. And uh, Elvin was always i mean when he came to u of h i mean there was no question about his his uh, concern and, and and you know he did have a chip on his shoulder and rightfully so because he had not never really been around that many white people and when he had they they'd really talked down to him and it were you know quite often very disparaging toward him and uh I, I can just uh, tell you from my own experience that uh, uh, he deserved to have a chip on his shoulder and uh, something that he had to, you know, in his mind he had to get over. Just just like white people can be racist, I think Elvin had the same mistrust toward toward blacks. I mean, toward whites, and uh, that was. Um, something that he had to get over and he you know that came with time and being around other people and and uh it's not something that just goes away overnight when you've you've been uh treated you know like a second or a third class citizen you know from the time you were little and uh 
to, to your, you know, nearly a grown man. Speaking of Elvin with the game of the century in 1968, you had number one, UCLA, number two, U of H, you know, you had Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, you know, Elvin Hayes in that game. It was just John Wooden, Guy V. Lewis. What was that atmosphere like for you? Uh, you know, that, that giant game in the Astrodome, just making history and just to see those two Titans go back and forth with the Cougars snapping the Bruins 47 game winning streak. Well, it was, it was, uh, unbelievable first of all you know we could just imagine if you saw the movie gladiators and how they opened the gates and then those gladiators walked out onto the uh arena floor there that's how it was when they opened the big gates the astrodome and there was this red carpet leading out to the playing uh, uh court and it was in the middle of the Astrodome, and of course, just the feeling that you had 53,000 fans, and it was just a roar going on there. I mean, it it, it was electrifying. I, I To this day, I still get goosebumps when I think about it. It was so amazing. And uh, those guys, uh, you know, it was a long uh, walk or run out there. And uh, then we got out on the court, and of course, you've got to remember, Lou Alcindor was the darling, not only of college basketball, but he'd been written up since he was a ninth grader as a six foot ten player when he came to our Christmas tournament. I mean, he was uh, nationally known as an as a ninth grader, as a fifteen year old. So you just imagine, here's a guy that's been getting all this publicity for six or seven years. Everybody knew his name. He was the uh, the crown prince of uh, college basketball and uh, the next greatest Will Chamberlain, so to speak. And then here's this guy, Elvin Hayes, who'd never gotten any publicity. And he was playing at the University of Houston, which was not anywhere near the caliber of UCLA, who'd been to the one, you know, national championships and with Gail Goodrich and, and uh, Walt Hazard and that whole group prior to that. You know, this was a uh, this was a chance for uh, Elvin to show exactly what he was made of, and he he went into that game with the mindset that he was going to destroy Lou Alcindor, <laughs> and he, he 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 when Elvin makes up his mind to do something, he's going to do it. It's just uh, the way he is. I mean, he's he he's the, probably the most competitive guy I've ever met. You got to remember, this is a guy that played 16 years in the NBA and only missed nine games. Now, just wow. imagine you pay 82 games a year times 16 years, plus exhibitions games. So you're you're talking about roughly 100 games a year. Uh, he played roughly 1,600 games and only missed nine of them. Now, come on, guys, that's that's almost <laughs> unheard of. 50,000 minutes. He played in the NBA. That was a record. When he retired, I, I don't know that it still stands, but it probably does. But some of these guys have played now 19 or 20 years. These kids right out of high school, and obviously they may have played longer. But they, I don't think any of them have gone uh, a career uh, without only missing nine games. But Elvin went into that game where well, we weren't going to lose. It, he made up his mind that uh, – you know we were going to win, and uh, he he carried us that whole game. I mean he was uh, in a zone, and um, you know 
39 points. And I think he had close to 20 rebounds and basically uh, was had grabbed the rebound at the uh, at the end of the game. And as as uh, as Don Cheney was saying, you know, he was concerned because Elvin was trying to dribble out the clock and uh, Elvin could only dribble with his right hand. He couldn't dribble with his left hand. So fortunately, Elvin passed the passed the ball out and we got it down the court to uh, George Reynolds and the, as the time ran out and uh, that gave us the 71 to 69 victory and uh, believe me uh, from that point on um, Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar um, he he knew that uh, he had somebody out there that was going to give him all the competition he was looking for. Guy Lewis, yeah, he's he's at the center of all these pivotal events uh, and and trends in college basketball. You know, the game of the century led to the national broadcasting of, of college basketball. Um, he integrated, you know, in the Southwest. That's so. Just looking back at his career and and I guess what would you say is his legacy? What what does he leave behind um, to all of us? Kind of looking looking back after the fact. The fact that he you know, was uh, instrumental in, in putting, um, you know, the best players on the court together. It didn't matter what color they were, but he just wanted to win. And uh, he was a uh, ferocious competitor. And, uh, you know, there was nothing that would make him happier than, you know, uh, a victory and uh, obviously nothing that would make him more despondent than a loss. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he was very, very passionate about the game of basketball and um, every one of his players were like his his sons I mean he treated everybody right down to the managers and the trainers you know with the equal amount of respect and uh, the thing I remember most about Guy Lewis was the fact that he was a real gentleman's gentleman uh, he treated everybody with a lot of class and dignity and um he uh, always dressed. I mean, he was always the sharpest, sharpest dresser out there. I don't care whether it was <laughs> coaches or anybody. Yeah. Well, Howard, it's it's been great hearing some of these stories about Coach Lewis, and uh, we definitely thank you for taking the time out of your your day and joining us and just talking about Coach Lewis's legacy and your experience with Elvin Hayes and you know the the Cougar program. And I uh, can't thank you enough for joining us today on the Weekly Brew. Well, listen, Austin, Kevin, it was a pleasure. I've enjoyed, you know, uh, meeting you, Kevin, and Austin. I look forward to meeting you sometime, and uh, <laughs> best of luck with your careers in, the, in broadcasting. I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your next show. Yeah, it was wonderful meeting you too, Howard, and I will see you. You know, I'm covering a lot of the games this season, so I will definitely see you out there at halftime at some of these games coming up. Well, I look forward to seeing you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Quite an interesting interview there with Howard Lorch. I mean, he had some interesting perspective in his relationship with Coach Lewis and being with the Cougar program from the 1960s. And obviously, he's still involved with the university here in Houston. Kevin, what did you think uh, with the what did you think about the interview with Howard today? Boy, you know, I met Howard at the uh, at the game against University of Louisiana Monroe the other night, uh, last night, in fact, 
and um, great guy. I uh, like the guy. I, I had no idea what was coming in terms of the stories and the perspective he was able to offer on that era of basketball. Um, but, you know, it's always been a fascination of mine. I, I used to work at the Daily Cougar. Um, I was actually working at the Daily Cougar, uh, which is now just called the Cougar, no longer Daily. But at the time I was working there when uh, Guy V. Lewis was inducted into the Naismith uh, Hall of Fame in 2013. And uh, I think the analogy I used in the article I wrote was like the Israelites wandering in, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And uh, I think, as I recall, my editor hated that. It was like a 2,000-word piece in which I got very in-depth and used a lot of uh, allusions and allegory and so forth, and it was uh, it was not well-received by the sports editor. But it was a big deal for me personally when he was inducted, and he's been a, a figure that I've looked toward, you know, five slam a jamma, uh, dunking in college basketball, largely the result of, uh, of Coach Lewis. He called it a high-percentage shot, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, and championed um, the dunk in basketball. So he really had a lasting impact on college basketball. Um, you know, I'm a basketball guy, and, and on me personally, even though I never met met him face to face you know the people that I know best and have been around have been very influenced by him so I was glad we were able to get Lorch on uh, and talk about coach Lewis and uh, he'll certainly be missed you know I, I uh, I'm sad this week and I imagine there are a lot of uh, Cougar fans that are sad as well and probably fans all over the country who are sad at the loss of coach Lewis again coach Guy V Lewis passed away at the age of 93 this past week and uh, we thank you Howard Lorch for joining us on the weekly brew and discussing his legacy you're listening to the weekly brew this past weekend i was in fort worth texas for the baylor tcu game and i'm sure most of our listeners probably watched that on tv and noticed the elements were not ideal for college football we're talking temperatures in the mid to low 30s with wind chill in the low 20s freezing rain sleet the elements uh, it was it was definitely quite a cold experience but it got me thinking that we are one step closer to december 6th and the college football playoff committee announcing their final four teams for the college football playoff and guys as we get down to the stretch it looks like there are a few teams that are left in the conversation for one of those coveted four spots and i'm curious as it stands right now assuming everything on december 6th who do you think will be in the final four and who is your pick for the national champion? Well, I think uh, my final four is going to stay pretty consistent, at least with the uh, the AP and the USA Today uh, polls that came out this afternoon or the refreshed rankings. Um, I've got Clemson, Alabama, and Oklahoma uh, getting in. And then that final four spot going to Michigan State or Iowa, whoever wins the Big Ten Championship. And I'm sorry if we have any Hawkeye listeners, but I have no confidence in Iowa's talent at all, and I'm going Michigan State. All right. Who's your pick for national champion? Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and go with uh, Clemson. I'd like to see them win it. That's more of like a, a hopeful wish than it really is. I truly think that I don't know much about Clemson um, outside of just the highlights on ESPN, but uh, I'll go ahead and throw my hat in with the Tigers. For my playoff picks, I've got, you know, it's pretty much consistent all around Clemson, Alabama, Oklahoma, and I'm going to go ahead and pick Iowa here. I, I, I think that um, I've seen a spark from this Iowa team um, that I, I think is unique to them. And um, I mean, seeing a game last year between Baylor and Michigan State, they're definitely a beatable team. You just have to stay on the ball. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go with those four. And for my uh, title winner, um, I'm actually going to go with Alabama here. I really think that that game against Ole Miss where they lost was a fluke. Um, they've got the Heisman um, front runner on their team, um, Derrick Henry. So I'm, I'm actually I'm pretty confident Alabama is going to come out on top. Interesting SEC flavor there. Kevin, what about you? Who do you have in your final four? Well, 
I've got the same Final Four as everyone. That's what's so boring about the college football playoffs this time is that there's really no intrigue here. It's the only thing that's up in the air is who wins the Iowa-Michigan State game they're getting in, and then everything else is pretty much set here, assuming that Clemson beats North Carolina, which I think is safe to assume. Uh, I like the way you said, actually, I, I pick Alabama, as though that's some sort of like you know uh, dark horse pick. I mean, it's hard to pick against Alabama. The uh, you know the perennials, um, the history there. I, I think that you know maybe I'm picking the name, but I, I, I surely could see Alabama coming away with this one and looking at the other three names there um i just don't know if i have enough faith in any of those programs to come through so i'm i'm not you know well versed and, and not particularly deep into it but i'd have to say alabama is my favorite and those those are the four teams that are going to be there if you count iowa and michigan state as one team whoever wins that game along the same lines i kind of agree with you guys but as it looks like as it looks like right now it looks like alabama and oklahoma are going to be squaring off in that first round that semifinal game and I actually think that Oklahoma can take that game I mean you've got a mobile quarterback in Baker Mayfield who's had a remarkable season throwing 35 touchdowns five interceptions just over uh, close to 3,400 yards passing uh, and he's completing nearly 70% of his passes one thing that we've noticed in the past that Alabama does struggle with spread oriented teams and I think Oklahoma could present some problems and I think that Oklahoma would knock off an Alabama team they are playing a great brand of football right now and I actually think the Big 12 champion, the Oklahoma Sooners, are going to emerge as the national champions this year. I would love to see that happen. And I, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was just a couple of years ago that Oklahoma did, in fact, knock off Alabama. Um, so they yeah, they could definitely do it again. I think I think Stoops has it in him. And um, yeah, Austin, you're totally right about Baker Mayfield. I saw him interviewed last night. I was really impressed with him, uh, really impressed with the way he played against Okie State, a very capable Okie State team. So I, I definitely think they have a shot. I just think Alabama's going to come out on top. And I think that's a natural transition to our next topic would be, you know, Heisman Trophy candidates. Baker Mayfield certainly among the mix. I'm curious, if you have a Heisman ballot and you're submitting it tomorrow, who do you rank as your Heisman Trophy winner for the 2015 college football season? Well, with the season Clemson has had and the fact that uh, we like to go quarterback with our Heisman votes, quarterback and running back, obviously, but but quarterbacks generally, uh, generally have the edge, I feel like, particularly when they've had the kind of season that Deshaun Watson has had for the Clemson Tigers. I mean, you look, he's got uh, 3,200 yards, 27 touchdowns. The 10 interceptions might potentially hurt him. That's that's pretty high. But I mean, a lot of production there, and he's completing his passes at a 70% rate. So, you know, that's, that's a guy that I think um, is deserving of a vote, at least at the moment. And we'll see uh, in the coming week here uh, what, uh, what's going to happen with his candidacy. But it would be hard to pick against him if, if I were voting. And, you know, to be honest, Kevin, I, I completely agree with you. I'm going to go ahead and go with another quarterback in there and with uh, OU's Baker Mayfield. Um, has almost an identical resume. Unfortunately, he does have the one loss to Texas to deal with that, uh, that Deshaun Watson doesn't. Um, but in their overall stats, uh, May- Mayfield is passing for more yardage and has um, about 15 more touchdowns on the season than than what Deshaun Watson does. So I think I cast my vote right now for Baker Mayfield from OU. I'm going to go with the bland, boring pick and just going to – I'm just- going to go ahead and go with Derrick Henry from Alabama. Um, I think the Heisman Trophy is finally going to go to a running back. Um, and, uh, I mean, if I'm looking here at the odds. Um, I, I think he's in a pretty good spot. of looking at his rushing stats here. I mean, he's got um, 1,800 yards of rushing this year. That's crazy. So, um, I'm, I'm just like 800, just like November alone. So, um, I think he's got a pretty good shot. Hey, JPEX, I'm curious. Uh, is the Crimson Tide sponsoring you on this episode of the podcast? I'm, I'm not at liberty to talk about <laughs> that right now. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to, you know, pad my commentary uh, to increase my, my chances here. 
Jeremy is what we call a bandwagon fan. Definitely a bandwagon fan. I guess for me, I'm going to go out on the West Coast here. I'm going to go with Christian McCaffrey, a sophomore at Stanford. Uh, you know, he's kind of flown under the radar this season. Uh, he's rushed for more than 1,600 yards, averaging 5.7 yards a carry, which is very, very similar to Derrick Henry. He's got seven rushing touchdowns, but you also look at what he's done on the receiving end. He's caught uh, 37 passes for nearly 500 yards, 11.8 yards of reception, uh, three touchdowns there. But more impressively, he has nearly 3,000 all-purpose yards. And Stanford's win over Notre Dame in Palo Alto on Saturday, he actually passed Reggie Bush for the most single-season all-purpose yards in Pac-12 history. Uh, We know Reggie Bush won the Heisman, then it was, I guess, revoked due to NCAA violations, which is another story in itself. But I think Christian McCaffrey should be in New York. And if I have a Heisman trophy ballot, I'm giving it to him. Uh, he actually is about 300 all-purpose yards away from breaking Barry Sanders' NCAA single-season mark, and he'll have a chance to do that uh, this week as Stanford plays for the Pac-12 championship. Guys, we've talked about our Heisman Trophy candidates, who we think should win the college football playoff, but I'm kind of curious, with all the positives that are happening in college football, who are the teams that you find disappointed you the most this season i think that anybody who knows me knows my pick ahead of time and and uh it's pretty easy for me u of h i mean come on that loss to connecticut is looking back particularly after the blowout win against navy the win against memphis and over time the sort of uh momentous historic type of comeback that was and, and just the season they had that uconn loss sticks out um in a really I, you called it a trap game we were talking earlier, and that just seems to be the sort of game that U of H gets sucked into and loses when they shouldn't. And so they're out of the national conversation once again, although we'll probably see them in, I guess at this point, we think it's the uh, Peach Bowl or Fiesta Bowl. Um, but it's just that sort of a blemish really stands out, particularly on Tom Herman's um, you know resume. And it just, it was such a disappointment. And I, I could not be more disappointed in any other team than I am with U of H having that kind of a mark on the record after that kind of a season. And then showing this last week they can come back and do much better. It just, I, I'm befuzzled, as my little sister says. Interesting. Um, so my, my disappointing team for this year has got to be the Auburn Tigers. Uh, they started out week one, ranked number six in the polls, and have fallen all the way to finishing seventh in the SEC West with a 6-6 six and six record. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking to that just a little bit more, just as a whole, I would consider the SEC to be the biggest disappointment this year, maybe on par with the Pac-12. Um, just looking at the polls that came out after being refreshed from what happened this weekend, you've got Alabama sitting in the top four, and then the next SEC team down is Ole Miss, a three-loss Ole Miss team at number 16. So that whole, the SEC is by far the best conference in the country, um, I think is starting to fade a little if you look at the polls. I think for me, the most competitive conference this year is the Pac-12, but in terms of dis- disappointing teams actually a few came to mind three of which were in the SEC the first one had to be Texas A&M uh, you know they started off the season 5-0 and uh, with some big wins against Arizona State and Arkansas in overtime beat Mississippi State but then you look at their final stretch they went four and three to or th- I'm sorry they went three and four to close the season and just did not look like a great team. I mean, Kevin Sumlin, since he's been at Texas A&M, has had remarkable recruiting classes, but he hasn't been able to put it together on the field. And with all of the talk about Les Miles, you know, whether or not he should be fired, then Mark Rick, who was fired from Georgia on Sunday, 
why isn't Sumlin on the hot seat? I think that he's been kind of disappointing, uh, as well as the uh, mediocre program for Texas A&M. But in terms of two other teams, I look at Georgia and LSU. Uh, both have had great coaches that uh, uh, one was let go today in Georgia, and, and, and Mark Rick, uh, he was fired. And Les Miles, who's been rumored uh, to have a $16 million buyout, uh, last week reports suggested that he was on his way out. And then the athletic director for LSU confirmed on Saturday night that he would be back next season. So it just looks like chaos going on. And I, I don't understand teams firing coaches after 10 win seasons. That to me is mind boggling, especially coaches that are the winningest coach in school history. So uh, I'm looking at those three SET teams as my disappointments for the year. Jeremy, what about you? What do you have to say about that? When I look at like most disappointing teams, I'm, I'm looking at the college football playoff uh, four from last year, and, and particularly the Oregon Ducks. I mean, I think most prognosticators, you know, thought that they would fall after losing Marcus Mariota, but but nothing like they have. I mean, they opened up ranked seventh in the AP poll, but um, they lost Michigan State and then followed by Utah and Washington State. So um, I think for a team that is supposed to have that level of talent, on the West Coast, um, I, I was really disappointed to see them perform like they did. You mentioned that, but they also had some injury issues this year with their quarterback, Vernon Adams, and I think that played into a little bit of their uh, tough losses. But you actually look at their schedule, and they did finish the season strong. Uh, they had uh, wins against Arizona State, Cal. Uh, they beat number 7 Stanford 38-36, and they also beat a solid USC team, so they finished quite strong, and I think a lot of that had to do with injuries at quarterback, but yeah, their defense has just been absolutely atrocious this year, but I think uh, 2016 could be another rough year as they're trying to fill in a void at quarterback as well. Right, and I'm also speaking kind of more broadly to the pack, eliminating itself from the college football playoff, um, and you, of course you said earlier just how competitive the conference is, I totally agree with that, um, but yeah, definitely, and I, I believe that um, at this point, they, they're they pretty much out of contention. Very interesting. We will see what the committee decides on December 6th, and again, the Heisman Trophy will be announced the following week. So uh, we're about to that time of bowl season, which if you're a college football fan, you've got about 30 days of sh- college football every day on TV. It's just a remarkable time uh, to be a college football fan. Some great television. Uh, be sure to stay tuned to the Weekly Brew podcast. We will be updating uh, our, our listeners on the bowl season, projections, content, everything of that nature. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. A deadly shooting at a Colorado Planned Parenthood is the latest in a long history of violence at clinics that provide abortions and doctors who perform the procedure. As CBS News first reported in September, an FBI intelligence bulletin went out to law enforcement agencies nationwide with that warning. It came as Congress was debating Planned Parenthood funding and on the heels of the release of a series of videos by Center for Medical Progress that purported to show Planned Parenthood doctors discussing the harvesting of fetal tissues from abortions. The intelligence bulletin warned of, quote, lone offenders using tactics of arsons and threats, all of which are typical of pro-life extremist movement. Of course, sad news coming out of Colorado Springs as four individuals were killed and I believe more than nine injured. Uh, It's just a very sad situation overall uh, to see transpiring in Colorado Springs. I actually drew an analogy uh, in one of the last two podcasts we did between this sort of terrorism um, in theory and terrorism uh, that existed currently being categorized as Islamic terrorism. and I think it's interesting that this has sort of come back around because this thing does happen all the time. And I, I don't understand. 
I don't know. Have you guys seen the photo that photograph of this guy, Robert Deere? Yeah, he looks like a nutcase. He looks like a nutcase. And I'm looking at an interview with a, a next door neighbor. Um, he said that uh, this guy seemed harmless to me. Um, hardly ever spoke with him, but when he did, he would offer nonsensical advice, like recommending that Hood put a metal roof on his house so the U.S. government couldn't spy on him. Um, it just very much seems like the sort of person you'd expect this kind of thing from, uh, lived on a, in a shack with no electricity and no running water because he was afraid of the government. Um, it's, it's nuts, but I got to say, uh, the guy appears to have some sort of right wing ax to grind. You know, he was screaming no more baby parts, um, which is in response to some of the rhetoric that's been thrown around about Planned Parenthood and fetal tissue, um, collection. Uh, I think specifically in reference to those videos that were released on YouTube not too long ago, but, um, you know, clearly an impressionable guy who I wouldn't characterize as being a Christian terrorist. I mean, he's just a nutcase. Um, but he, uh, I guess, was swayed by uh, a lot of the hate rhetoric, according to some people on the left, um, and and sort of was caught up in it and did the unthinkable and uh, ended up killing a cop um, as well. So, I mean, certainly a, a tragedy. And I, I don't know, could it have been averted? I, I don't know. This guy was acting alone. I, I, I of course, support gun control. Um resolutions but I, I think that i'm probably alone on this podcast and that um but what do you guys think i agree with kevin in the sense that you know I, I don't think this guy was any sort of extremist other than just a nutcase i'm looking at some of his criminal history here on cnn and it appears he has two prior convictions for animal cruelty um neighbors definitely say that he is was he was a little strange um he he, he was he was not registered to any political party so he just kind of seems like the sort of um maybe he had some mental health issues that um, were uh, not disclosed. Um, certainly the living in a shack without any um, modern amenities uh, hiding from the government, that to me suggests a, sort of a cohesive paranoia. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to say that this guy is just sort of a loner. Um, I, I think equating what guys like this do to sort of organized groups um, with tens of thousands of members like ISIS or Al Qaeda, I just, I don't, it, I mean, it's hard to do really, um, even if you're on the left. So, uh, anyways, I, I, looking at all this, it's, it's extremely disappointing and unfortunate to see this happen, um, at Planned Parenthood and to see a police officer killed like that. Um, I, I think if we're, uh, looking, um, at a, from a policy perspective, um, these things just, uh, they don't happen, um, I, I guess that often. And so I have to wonder like, what, what is it exactly that could be done to, to help stop some, one of these attacks again, unless it was Planned Parenthood stepping up security at their own clinics. Jeremy, you said that these don't happen often, but that's just not the case. I mean, this year there have been arson. Uh, you know, people have poured gasoline and just outside of uh, Aurora, Colorado, actually, there was a Planned Parenthood facility which some uh, person poured gasoline trying to set it on fire. So, I mean, these things do happen, and that's what's kind of saddening. I mean, uh, you know, personally, like, I, I'm pro-life. Like, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't care what side of the debate you stand on in terms of Planned Parenthood, defunding them, you know, whatever. I think anyone that acts and does something like this is messed up. I mean, if you don't agree with somebody, protest. Go out and try to lobby. Try to, you know, do something to, uh, you know, shut down the clinic. But, like, don't go to these drastic measures. I mean, t to me, when you impact somebody else's lives like that, I mean, it's, it's absolutely tragic. And I just want to correct something. Earlier, I said that four people had died. Uh, it's actually three people dead, including a police officer, and nine others were wounded. Uh, and it, it's just a sad situation overall. And I don't understand bringing violence into a political issue. To me, that solves nothing and only exacerbates 
creates the problem. And this is the opposite of being pro-life. You know, this guy is, is killing people in order to, I guess, protest the use of fetal tissue. But what is the sense in that? And I guess there is no sense in it, ultimately. That's one of the things that I can't justify. Like, I mean, if, if you if you say you are pro-life and that you're trying to, you know, stop you know, babies from being aborted, why are you taking other people's lives? To me, that, that doesn't make sense. Austin, I was referring specifically like shooting rampages. You know, certainly there have been other incidents at Planned Parenthood clinics um, that are, um, you know, criminal in nature. In terms of just the, the rhetoric around all this, um, I think it's sort of, this is, these sorts of things are always used uh, politically to sort of accomplish a goal. And I, I really admire people when they choose not to do that. But certainly on the right and the left, there's a lot that's um, been fired back and forth here in the past couple of days that um, I, I really wish uh, hadn't been. But, you know, it's just the nature of politics these days. And Carly Fiorina actually said on Fox News Sunday, uh, she was referencing this. It's funny you talk about politicizing it. She says, any protester should always be peaceful. It's obviously a tragedy. Nothing justifies this. Any protester should be peaceful, whether it's Black Lives Matter or pro-life protesters. So she throws in a Black Lives Matter uh, comment about whether they should be peaceful uh, in reference to this, which I thought was particularly underhanded, low, and kind of scummy. I mean, what do you guys think hearing that? I actually completely agree with her, and I'm glad that she said that. I mean, this is the same Black Lives Matter movement that just a few weeks ago when the Paris tragedy was going on initiated an FU Paris um, because they took the attention off the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, uh, and she's right. I mean, there's nothing in politicizing and saying that all demonstrations should be peaceful. I mean, that's that's constitutional. That's not politicizing it in any way. And that is simply a reminder to call to anyone on any side of the argument, whether it's, you know, as you refer to this guy as being an extreme right, and we all can agree, everyone would agree that, you know, these sorts of protests or uh, demonstrations uh, against a certain ideology or point of view or philosophy should not take place, but that should be applied to everyone across all spectrums of the political landscape. And I think that just given the uh, environment here on the podcast, I would like to say I do actually give money to Planned Parenthood every year. I think that what they do is uh, is admirable, is uh, great for this country, economically great for women. And uh, it really saddens me in particular when these places are targeted because I think it creates an atmosphere of fear in a place that is designed to help people who are already in places of, uh, of fear oftentimes or in need of help. And so it's a particularly reprehensible strike at um, a place that I would consider to be off limits, much like a hospital uh, or a church or uh, some sort of sanctuary. And uh, it's always particularly detestable to target those sorts of places, I think. So I'm I'm deeply saddened and uh, maybe I'll step up my giving this year. In the same way that Kevin supports Planned Parenthood, you know, on the other side, I, I find what they do reprehensible and I never give money to them. But um, I, I think it's good that we can come and disagree like reasonable people about it and not uh, resort to um, any sort of violence or, or really heated rhetoric. Very sad situation overall in Colorado Springs, and our hearts go out to the people whose lives were lost, and uh, hopefully justice will be brought to this, uh, this psychopath that uh, took the lives of several innocent people. Closing time. Guys, we had a fun episode today. We talked about uh, Guy V. Lewis, who passed away last week at the age of 93. We had Howard Lorch on the show to discuss his interaction with Coach Lewis, and he had some very interesting stories to tell. Uh, again, Howard, we thank you for joining us on the Weekly Brew. Uh, we also discussed our college football predictions as we gear t- closer toward the end of the season, and uh, we talked about the tragic events uh, that took place in Colorado Springs on Friday. But on a more positive note, uh, last week we provided a call of action to our listeners to go ahead and rate us and review us on iTunes. And Kevin, we had great feedback this week. 
Yeah, last week I mentioned I was a little disappointed in our listeners. I felt like they hadn't really stepped up the way that I wanted them to. And I have to say, I uh, it's a total 180 this week. You guys did a great job. We've got some new reviews. And as promised, and as always, uh, we're happy to read those out in the air because, frankly, they're good reviews of us. So Gabriella H. said, enjoy the banter and different points of view. Uh, she talks about enjoying the podcast, obviously the banter. And she likes that they touch, we touch, on different subjects, not only sports, which is uh, good advice to us. We're always looking for ways to improve. And, you know, we kind of wonder about the format of the show. And so we like to hear that kind of of validation. Uh, and she also mentions that the uh, bad uh, first date story will be ingrained in her mind forever. So that's a callback to episode 10. You guys should go back and listen uh, to my interaction there. Uh, but I'm always happy to get that kind of a shout out. And then we got Jay Stud Bear, who I would just like to give kudos on a great handle. Um, I wish that my first name started with a J. I'd take that myself. Great stuff. Uh, solid podcast. Covers a wide variety of current events and issues. Again, kind of encouraging us to keep on both sports uh, and the other stuff. Knowledgeable and in-depth, definitely worth the listen. And then two thumbs up from Q31, politics, sports, and off-the-cuff banter. I appreciate that. We try very hard for that. Uh, Great source for insightful commentary uh, from a genuine perspective. Sure to appeal to a wide range of audiences. So that's awesome. Love to hear that. And then Britt L1128 says, great podcast. Loves the mix of current events and sports and would love to hear more interviews with musical guests and then says, make it happen. So that's a little bossy, Brit L, but we appreciate the feedback. And I think that's something we can try to do. I've actually uh, gotten in touch and I'm reaching out to some musical guests this week. So maybe in the next week or two, we will have uh, someone on the show uh, as you requested, Brit. So keep listening. Thank you, everyone who reviewed us again this past week. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, so make sure to uh, go to iTunes, search for ratings and reviews, give us a five stars, tell us what you like, what you don't like, how we can improve, uh, but make sure that uh, you go to iTunes and do that for us. Uh, we will really appreciate it. And uh, also want to make sure that our listeners are aware of our social media handles. Again, you can find us at facebook.com slash weekly brewcast. You can also follow us at twitter.com at weekly brewcast and on Instagram. Again, search for weekly brewcast. In terms of social media, we again had some interaction this week on our Twitter account. And uh, we had a question that came in from uh, John Slavney. He said, good to hear Austin and Kevin touch on Big Ten basketball last week's weekly brewcast. What are Wisconsin's chances this year? And uh, John, in terms of what I think Wisconsin's chances are, uh, it'll be tough to contend in the Big Ten this season, especially when you lose Sam Decker and Frank Kaminsky. However, there are three certainties in life death, taxes, and Bo Ryan, so I would not count out the Badgers. They're going to be a little bit young this year, but I think they'll make a push and get into the NCAA tournament possibly one or two rounds deep, but uh, never sleep on Bo Ryan. So, John, thanks for the shout-out there. Also on Twitter, we had some interaction with Bros Beer, who said the podcast is becoming a favorite weekly brewcast. Mixing commentary with humor makes it great. Uh, so thank you to Bros Beer for the kind words. And finally, we had word from INA Daily News saying, love this podcast, weekly brewcast. They have good insights on political issues around the world. Listen here. So thank you for the kind words. And again, make sure to interact with us on all of our social media channels. And if you want to interact with us personally, you can find me on Twitter at a statin. Kevin, tell them how they can find you. And you can find me on Twitter at kmichaelcook. I know I've got a couple of listeners that have followed me. I would love to have some more on there. I've been growing. It's been very exciting. And I have to say, uh, with the reviews that have come in, the new listeners, the subscribers, the uh, interactions on Twitter, all of it, we've sort of um, joked before that the interactions we have with the listeners on social media are like a replacement for a real social life. And I'm here to tell you, it's not really a joke. It's very true. I'm very happy this week. And most of it's due to the success. I am speaking only for myself here, but uh, but I am a markedly happy 
happier man this week. So remember, please, uh, if you're listening, it's in order to help us grow, iTunes puts a lot of weight into the uh, reviews and ratings portions. So if you want to help us grow, even if you don't want to help us grow, I want you to help us grow. Uh, go to the ratings and review section. Give us a five-star rating and a little blurb telling us uh, what you like and what we could do to improve. So uh, Britt L. wants more musical guests. We're going to get more musical guests. So that's a, that's a forum for you to interact with us and improve the show as well. So I appreciate all of you guys making my life better this week. Jeremy, you're also active on Twitter. Tell us how we can find you. My Twitter handle is at FiestaBear08. I check it a few times a week, so I'm not too active. But uh, whenever there's a college sporting event going on, I try to get a tweet or two out. So uh, don't hesitate to follow me. And for those of you that have not heard, uh, Zach Taylor is not on social media. Again, I believe it was episode seven or eight in which he told the listeners why that was the case. So if you want to get in touch with Zach, uh, I suggest smoke signals are the best way. Zach, is that the best way to get in touch with you? Yes, I was actually going to jokingly say that uh, and our listeners can find me in the yellow pages here in Fort Worth. Or in the white pages or, or, or whatever. All right, guys. Well, I had a lot of fun uh, getting together this week and chatting. Uh, again, this is our 17th episode of the Weekly Brewcast. And for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Zach Taylor, I'm Austin Statton, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 